Thanks, Natalie. Morning, everyone. Once again, it's good to see you. And um, just so you're not wondering anymore, anymore, I'm not wearing uh, these sunglasses as a sermon illustration or uh, because I'm trying to look cool. Uh, I realized a long time ago there's nothing I can wear or do that will make me look cool. Um, <laughs> but um, actually, I'm, I found out on Friday I have an eye infection, so my eye is very sensitive to light now. And that's why I'm wearing these glasses, um, because it kind of helps. Uh, I would appreciate your prayers for uh, quick healing for my eye. Um, also, if you weren't uh, in service right at the beginning and you didn't hear the announcement, uh, once again, we apologize. The bathrooms in this main building, as well as uh, the church office and carriage house are out. Uh, there's a, um, a sewage problem that we're having. And so, so subsequently, you know, you probably saw if you tried to go to the bathrooms that, uh, you know, it's taped off and there's a sign on the door. So uh, we apologize for that condition. Um, subsequently, too, CM, after uh, their service, after the Chinese service, they canceled Sunday school. Um, unfortunately, too, uh, there's no children's program or we don't have our regular children's program uh, during this worship, so we apologize for that. Uh, I understand they were trying to see if they can set a video up for the children um, in the chapel, but I haven't heard whether they've been able to do that or not. Um, but hopefully they'll be able to set that up and, and your children can go to that if they do. So, um, yeah, once again, we just apologize. Kind of when it rains, it pours. It's like everything is going wrong for this weekend. Uh, but that won't stop us from hearing uh, the Word of God. So we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to talk about Christ and the Old Testament law. The passage for this morning is probably the most significant passage in how Jesus views the Old Testament. And how Jesus views the Old Testament should have a great impact on how we view or read the Old Testament. Um, and thinking of a, a title uh, for the sermon, I also thought of a Pastor Chekha-esque title as I was thinking of a title which I put uh, as, your, as a subtitle. Um, should we skip the lobster? And what I mean by that is this. In Leviticus 11, verses 9 to 12, it reads this. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all other living creatures in the water, in the water you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. So living in New England, I realized, you know, lobster is a big deal up here. People love eating lobster, be it steamed lobster, you know, lobster rolls, stir-fed lobster. But if we're following what scripture says, should we be really eating this lobster? I mean, I'm not a big lobster fan, so I'm not too guilty of, you know, breaking this law. Uh, but actually, I am guilty if you include clam chowder, which would be uh, counted in this passage, since clams don't have fins or scales either. Um, so should we be eating these things? And if you say, well, no, we, we don't need to worry about this uh, because we're living in New Testament times, 
that Old Testament times, don't we still kind of follow some of the Old Testament rules? For example, one of the Ten Commandments says we are not to make idols of God and bow down and worship them. So would you say it's okay now to make an idol of God and bow down and worship it? And if not, why would you say that? Why would we still follow some of the Old Testament laws, but say we don't have to obey certain of the other laws? And so that's what I'm going to get into this morning. When we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, when his hearers um, heard the Sermon on the Mount back then, they realized that Jesus taught like no other teacher had taught before, and no other teacher ever will. When Jesus finished giving the Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew 7, the crowds were amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He brought radical ideas and meaning to what had been previously taught. If you were here last week, you saw the example of one thing that he did when Pastor Stephen was given the message and used that two-by-four, right, to, to talk about the plank in your eye and how that related to judging. I mean, who would have come up with something like that except for Jesus? So as Jesus was teaching these things, you know, and this audience was listening, as the audience was, you know, being amazed and like, wow, you know, listen to what this guy's saying, thoughts began to creep into their mind. You know, is he going to abolish the Old Testament law? Is he going to nullify it and replace it with someone else? So Jesus uses this passage to clear up any confusion that may exist. Verse 17 of our passage. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is another reference or or term to reference the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I mean, how much more direct can Jesus be? I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not doing away with the Old Testament commands. I'm coming to fulfill them. And to add even more emphasis, he says in verse 18, For truly I tell you, till heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is called the Yod. It just looks just like an apostrophe. And the least stroke of a pen... Sorry, are we good for the... We are. Okay. Sorry, Emily, just informed me, we do have a video for the children in the chapel. So if you have children here and you'd like to uh, have them go to the, you can have them go to the chapel, um, that'd be fine. So feel free to take your children, have your children go to the chapel, so it'll be a little more, uh, less distracting for you here. Take a couple seconds for the... The parents can <coughs> let their children go to the chapel. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. Okay, so once again, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet was a yod. It looks just like an apostrophe. It's that small. And the least stroke of a pen for the Hebrew was this Hebrew seraph. And it just was a little mark that would be used to distinguish one letter from another. 
if we want to use the English alphabet as an example, you can think about a capital F. And if you just make this little stroke at the bottom of an F, it becomes a capital E, right? So Jesus is saying that, you know, just even these little marks, even though they may seem insignificant, they're important, they're significant. None of these little marks will be dismissed without them being accomplished. So basically by saying this, he's confirming the correctness and the consistency of Scripture, that all of the Old Testament is God's word, which is truth. And God's word cannot be broken. It will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in Jesus. So if Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets, how does he actually fulfill them? In the overall big picture scheme of things, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament because everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. It points to Christ. If you've been coming to our church for a while, you may remember Pastor Chuck preaching through the, the big story of the Bible. Hopefully, you know, if you were listening to the series, you'll remember that you know, Scripture is based upon God's plan of redemption and restoration for all of creation. And this plan was through the three promises that were given to Abraham, right? The promise for people, for land, and that they would be a blessing to all nations. The nation Israel couldn't fulfill the third law, the third promise. So Jesus came to complete the work that Israel couldn't. And it's in Jesus that all nations will be blessed. And a related note, this truth also impacts how we should read the Old Testament. Because we can't just open the Old Testament and read it to just learn about the history and culture back then. Or we can't even read it just to get a picture of what God was like back then. This would be an incomplete reading of Scripture. Jesus, by saying that he fulfills it, means that as we read the Old Testament... We have to read it through the lens of this big story and how everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Beginning in Genesis, where Jesus' reference is the seed that would bring redemption, all the way to the last book in Malachi, where Jesus is referenced as the son of righteousness who would bring healing. Every book points to Jesus, to Christ. And of every book, points to Christ. Once again, we just can't read the Old Testament as, you know, well, that was true back then. But we read it in terms of what does this mean in light of Christ and how should that apply to me today? And to further understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, we have to understand a little bit more about the Old Testament laws. To elaborate, we have to start by understanding that there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. Three types of laws were the moral, judicial, and the ceremonial. The moral, judicial, and ceremonial. The moral law was based on the Ten Commandments and lays down guidelines to ensure that people's behavior reflected such as those who were God's chosen people. These were laws based on God's holiness and based on his holy nature, And as such, these laws in itself were holy, just, and unchanging. The judicial laws were the laws set as governing regulations for the nation of Israel. 
They were more corporate principles in how Israel were to govern themselves when they went into the promised land. These laws dealt with things like business transactions, land disputes, what to do if a person committed a crime. And then you have the ceremonial laws. These were given to teach the Israelites how to properly worship their God. These laws gave them instructions on things to do so that they would come before God as clean. And when they approached their God, how to do things in a way that would be right to honor God, how to do things that would worship God, that would show that they were different from other nations. These laws related to things like sacrifices, temple worship, And so when Jesus talks about coming to fulfill the law, you know, when you look at these three laws, which laws was he he coming to fulfill? Well, in short, the answer is all of them. But we need to see how Jesus actually fulfilled these three types of laws. For the moral law, he fulfilled these laws through his life and lessons through his life and lessons. And this is what I mean by that. Through his life and that, he never broke any of these laws. Galatians 4, 4 that tell, tells us that Jesus was born under the law. And in Hebrews 4, 15, it tells us we do not have a high priest who is Jesus that is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He did not sin, so therefore he did not break any of the laws. So he fulfilled the moral law by perfectly keeping it. He also fulfilled it by teaching the true meaning of the law. Someone counted and figured out that there were a total of 613 commands and prohibitions in the Old Testament. And groups back then had much discussion on what it meant to follow these laws. You had groups like the scribes and the who were the teachers of or the scribes and, and who were the teachers of the law, coming up with these minute details and instructions on how one was to follow God's command. To give you an example, you remember that you know God instructs people to observe the Sabbath and not to do work on that day. But what would be considered work? Well, these scribes got together and began debating what would be considered work. And the Sabbath. And just to give you some of the things that they thought of, here's some of the things they listed. They put down things like, to write was to work on the Sabbath. But what did it mean to write? Well, they came up with this. He who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right hand or left hand, whether of one kind or two kinds, if they are written with different kinds of inks or different languages, is guilty. He that writes on two walls that form an angle or two tablets in his account book so that they can be read together is guilty. But if anyone writes with dark fluid, fruit juice, or the dust of the road or the sand or anything which does not make a permanent mark, is not guilty. So you get a sense of just kind of some of the crazy stuff they came up with, right? And they would teach people, if you follow these principles, you would be obeying the law and God would be pleased with you. But if you, not, if you didn't, you were guilty 
and you were disobeying God. But they totally miss the point and the purpose of the law, which is why Jesus kept rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees while he was on earth. Jesus, when he came, explained what the purpose of the laws were for and how to follow it. We don't have time to really get into it, and, and we'll be looking at this as we uh, you know, uh, dig more into the uh, Sermon on the Mount series. But just if you want an example, you could skim, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 5, you could skim down to the next five sections in Matthew 5, and this will be easy if your Bible has headers. You can see that Jesus will touch on some of these commands and these different laws about murder, about adultery, about taking oaths. And he begins with the, each, each section with the phrase that starts out something like, <clears throat> but I tell you, or excuse me, it was, you have heard it said before, meaning this is how people interpret it before, but I tell you. So, you know, he's correcting his listeners and how they were supposed to understand and obey the law. So once again, he fulfilled the moral law through his living a perfect life and not breaking any of the laws and through his lessons and in interpreting and explaining the law in the proper way. Regarding the judicial laws, Jesus fulfilled this through his life sacrifice. Through his life sacrifice. Remember once again that the judicial laws were given to Israel to set them apart from other nations to show that as a nation they had this special relationship with God which was different from God's relationship with the rest of the nations. But when Jesus died on the cross, this was Israel's final rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. As such, this ended God's special relationship or God's special dealing with national Israel. This ended his relationship with Israel as his chosen people who were supposed to be a blessing to the nations as you know, we saw in the third promise of the, that God made to Abraham. Matthew 21, verse 43, confirms this when Jesus says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So instead of a national people of God, Israel, God would now use a new institution, which is the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, to carry forth this message of redemption. As such, the judicial law was set aside because Jesus no longer recognized Israel as national Israel to fulfill his promise of redemption. And through his crucifixion, he instituted a new, uh, you know, a new group, being the church. So once again, through Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the, the, the judicial laws and it ended the judicial laws that Israel was to follow. For the ceremonial law, Jesus also fulfilled these laws through his life sacrifice. In the Old Testament, once again, the ceremonial laws were meant to instruct the people how to come before God pure and clean If you remember, you know, God is so holy that regular people just 
couldn't come to the temple, you know, when they wished or as they wished. They had to prepare themselves to do so. And they couldn't even enter parts, certain parts of the temple. Only the priests could. And even the high priest, the highest priest, could only enter the most holy part of the temple once a year. And this only after he prepared himself. So when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? If you remember, that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil separating the most holy place in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what this symbolized was that God was saying that the whole ceremonial system was over. People can now have access to God and be seen as coming to God pure and clean through the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10, 19-22 confirms this. When the author writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we can now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his holy body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Since again, the author is confirming that when Jesus died on the cross through faith, we can have confidence to come clean, to enter the presence of God, because we will be seen as clean and pure. So Jesus, as we see, did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill it and fulfill it in every way. And I should also add that Jesus also fulfilled the prophets because he either has or he will fulfill every prophecy that they gave in the Old Testament. He fulfilled things like where the Messiah would be born, what line of, what lineage he would come from, what would happen when he died, and so on. And those prophecies that he has not fulfilled yet, he will fulfill when he comes. So everything in the Old Testament that the prophets wrote about the coming Messiah pointed to Jesus. And Jesus either has or will fulfill them in every way. So I know that this first section was just a lot of theology, which in some ways I hope was helpful, but you know, I know you, you know, you still wonder, well, what does all this mean to us? And how has this become practical and not just head knowledge? I mean, should we still skip the lobster? But Jesus continues in verses 19 to 20. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of, these, one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus seems to say, if we don't fulfill the Old Testament, or we don't follow the Old Testament commands, we will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. But if we do, we will be considered great. He even goes so far to say that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And understand that would have been very shocking for his listeners to hear back then, because if anyone was considered righteous, 
It was the Pharisees and the scribes. Because as we saw a bit earlier, right, they were the ones who meticulously wrote what it meant to follow the law. And, and they, more than anyone else, probably obeyed the law. So how can a person's righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and scribes? Well, there's several thoughts on what Jesus meant when he told his listeners the statement that their righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and scribes. Some people interpreted Jesus' statement as referring to the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. The the conviction was that no one can follow the law perfectly. Even the Pharisees and scribes, as hard as they tried, as, as, as much as they wanted to be considered holy, could not be considered holy because they could not perfectly follow the law. So when Jesus said what he said, that the Pharisees, you know, that the, your righteousness must, must have to surpass that of the Pharisees and scribes, this view says that he wanted to make people realize the height of God's standard of perfect holiness and the depth of the people's sin, that no one could be more righteous than um, then, or no one's righteousness me, could surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And the only way that one could be considered righteous is through Jesus. That when a person receives Jesus into his or her life, Scripture teaches God looks at us as having Christ's righteousness in us. In other words, since Jesus fully met the standard of Christ's righteousness through his perfect living, if we accept Jesus, as the leader of our life and the one to forgive our sins, he would also see us as having such righteousness. And there are verses that confirm this. Romans 3, 21 and 22 says this, But now, apart from the law of righteousness of God, has, oh, oh, excuse me, but now, apart from the law of righteousness of God has been named, made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, Paul says, this righteousness is given through faith in Christ. And then a couple chapters later, in Romans 5, Paul writes this in verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, it's referring to Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, <coughs> once again, <coughs> don't sneeze into the mic. Hey. Um, so Jesus, once again, um, through his statement, wanted to show his listeners their complete incapability to achieve God's righteous standard and that it could only come through Christ. And based on what I said, you know, there is truth to this. But I don't believe this was Jesus' total intent for this statement. A second thought is that when Jesus talked about the righteousness greater than the Pharisees and scribes, he was referring more to a right understanding. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Jesus greatly criticized scribes and the Pharisees, because though they may meticulously tried to follow the 613 commands and prohibitions in the Old Testament, they totally missed the point. They were too focused on the externals 
instead of the internals. They wanted to do what they thought necessary to appear clean, but it had no impact on what was going on on the inside. To give you a little preview of one of the next sections, so like when Jesus talks about adultery, we'll see that while not negating the importance of not actually committing the physical act of adultery, we'll find that Jesus is more concerned about the lust going inside a person's heart. You see, and the Pharisees didn't get that. That's why he rebuked the Pharisees with what he said at times, in, um, at times like when he said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Since the Pharisees missed the point of the law, Jesus' statement about having a righteousness greater than the Pharisees meant that if one was to have a proper understanding of the law, the way Jesus explained it, over how the Pharisees understood it, this is what Jesus meant when he said that one must have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees and scribes. And though, you know, once again, I think there is some truth to this statement, I don't believe this fully encapsulates what Jesus meant. So there's a third interpretation of Jesus' statement. And and that's the belief that Jesus literally meant what he said when he said one's righteousness had to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. That is, one's life must demonstrate righteous deeds and acts that are greater than the righteous deeds and acts thought of by the Pharisees. Or to put it more succinctly, that there must be right living. Right living. And I wouldn't agree with this understanding. And here's why. You see, with the first two interpretations, they're both lacking in the sense that one could understand that a believer has Christ's righteousness placed in their lives. One could recognize that the Pharisees got, you know, got misunderstood all the laws and the commands and that we need to have a more accurate understanding of the law. But even having these two things would not necessarily change the way we live. It would all just be head knowledge. But Jesus does expect that our way of living out the law would be greater than others. And he enable, and more so, he enables us to do so because he has given us the Holy Spirit to help us obey the law. In Romans 8, I'm sorry, not, not Romans 7 in your outline, in Romans 8, in verses 2 to 4, it says this, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he tells us here that we are to live according to the Spirit. And even though you know, in, in the first part of verse 2, he talks about being set free from the law of sin and death. He, he goes on in chapter 8 to talk about how he does see God's law, the Old Testament law, as being good and that it is to be followed. But we only do so 
and the power of the Spirit. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Galatians 3, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So it is through the Holy Spirit that we are empowered to live according to God's higher standard of righteousness. So as we seek to obey through the power of the Spirit, once again, how are we to apply the Old Testament commands? Well, we do so in the way that Jesus interprets them and fulfills them. As explained earlier, the the judicial laws and the legal laws no longer apply because of how Jesus fulfilled them. The moral laws do still apply because of its unchanging nature. So one could correctly explain that we cannot make idols before God and worship God, or bow down to worship God through them, because this is a moral law which still needs to be upheld. But one can eat lobster because this was a ceremonial law since it made a person unclean before God, but now through Jesus this is no longer the case. For further proof, you could also cite the example in Acts 10 when Peter has a, a dream about unclean animals appearing before him and God instructs him to eat the animals. And Peter says, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But he was told after that remark, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So go ahead and feast on your lobsters. But understand too that the purpose of the law is really to help us love God more and love others more. In Matthew In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, once again the Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. So when we seek to apply the laws, we do so asking the question, does this help us love God more? And does it help us love others more? One commentator wrote about a time when he was having breakfast with a Messianic Jew. This is a, a Jewish person who recognizes that Jesus is actually the Messiah and has accepted uh, Jesus into his life. And when ordering his breakfast, um, the author got a meal with bacon, to which his Jewish friend remarked, you got to be kidding me. You're going to eat that? And because they were friends, the author replied, my God actually doesn't care what I eat. And his friend laughed and said, well, my God does, but that's fine. You see, even though his Jewish friend was a believer, he felt convicted that he should still follow Jewish kosher laws because he was still ethnically part of God's original chosen people, so should still follow some of these customs. Was the Jewish man wrong for doing this? I don't think so, because in his mind... It was his way to obey God and show that he loved God more through his obedience. So once again, as we interpret these laws and figure out, should we be living them out? Should we be practicing them? We have to ask the question, and through the practice of these laws, is it a way to help me show that I love God more? Is it a way to help me show that I love others more? As we understand how Jesus acknowledges and fulfills the Old Testament law. May we live according to the Holy Spirit's leading to show us that we are set apart 
for God. To show that God's laws are true and are right. And to show that it is our desire to love God and to love others more through our obedience of the law. May God continue to teach you and convict you on, on this passage. Let us pray. Father, I thank you once again for your truth and your word. Your word is truth. And your word is good. And your laws are good. And I thank you, Lord, for Jesus and his affirmation that what we have in the Bible is from you. And because it is from you, it is true, and we should apply it. So, Lord, as we continue to think about what Jesus' statement means, that we need to have a righteousness that surpasses those of the Pharisees and scribes, may you continue to speak to us on how we should, how you would desire for us to live it out and how we can live our lives in such a way to show that we do love you more and we do love others more and we are set apart because we are your chosen people. And we do so also to show that you are God so that others can be drawn to you and recognize your goodness and grace in our lives and how you desire it for it to be in their lives as well. And it probably seems in Jesus' name. Amen.